Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on the show today, I'm going to be talking about what our sun looks like if you were trying to find exoplanets from a different planet. Uh, Hannah's going to be chatting to the special guest, Dr. Joe Barstow, and Andrew's going to be covering all the goings-on in the news from the last month, so just stay tuned for that. But first, let's introduce the Exocast family. So, my name's Hugh Osborne, and I'm a postdoc in the Laboratoire of Astrophysique in Marseille, in France, and I study uh, transiting exoplanets, specifically with the Plato Space Telescope. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I'm at Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, and I characterise the atmospheres of exoplanets, mostly using the Hubble Space Telescope. And I'm Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral astrobiologist at the University of California, Irvine, where I study the climate of small worlds in the galaxy. Excellent. How's, uh, how's everybody been doing over the last month? It's not been too long since we did our, our last episode. Yeah, great. I'm literally ready to submit a paper in the next hour. So, so Exocast, you know, I'll have to wait for the end of Exocast, but I'm pretty happy that this is uh, finally finished. But... That's super exciting. Well done, Hugh. Is that from your FGL work uh, over the summer? Yeah, so it's been six months in the pipeline since the summer. Um, and now there's actual test data that we can use, which is quite fun. It's made it slightly more complicated, but um, yeah, it should be, should be pretty cool. Uh, uh, by the time this is out, it'll probably be on the archive, so look out for that. Nice. Fantastic, fresh off the press. Yeah, we just had the test data workshop here at Space Telescope uh, last week, and it was it was really excellent to see all of the different ways people are handling the test data and all of the new different tools that are available online for people to to play with. We had a, I mean, I don't play with Planet Discoveries. That's Hugh's Hughes bag of tricks. But uh, I uh, I was playing around with all of these different tools, and it was it was a lot of fun to try and understand the data and all of the like intricacies of such a small telescope. So, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that I'll, I'll touch it again if I'm entirely honest with everybody. I'm not a planet discoverer, but uh, it was it was really interesting to try and understand all of the little things that go into discovering planets with TESS. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of excitement around the uh, around the mission as things are building now. Um, personally, I uh, I spent most of well, not most of this month, but a lot of this month freezing my butt off in <laughs> Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I was at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, learning to use some of their really cool climate and Earth systems models, which are really uh, really interesting, very informative, um, but uh, yeah, I've never been so cold in, in my life. Uh, I guess the deep snow helped to provide a, a good lesson about ground albedo changes, which was great. Um, but you know that the 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 256 Kelvin temperature set some new lower limits for my personal habitable zone. Uh, but. <laughs> You got too used to California, Andrew. I have. I really have. I've I've become um, rather soft uh, when it comes to climate now. Um, but nevertheless, very enjoyable. Learned a lot. Um, but I, I don't think you're probably uh, here to hear about um, the three of us talking about our month. You're probably here for the science and also for, no doubt, the highlight of our show, our special guest. So without further ado, uh, Hannah, whom do we have joining us this month? Uh, this month, we are welcoming our special guest, Dr. Joe Barstow. Uh, Dr. Joe Barstow is a Royal Astronomical Society Fellow at the University College London. Uh, 
Following her PhD, uh, at, which was conducted at the University of Oxford, she moved there very recently uh, to lead projects using the Nemesis code. So welcome, Jo. Hi, Hannah. Um, thanks very much for having me on the show. It's great to have you here. Uh, and it's great that we can really talk about the intricacies of and the difficulties associated with exoplanet atmospheres. Could you just give us a brief introduction to the work that you do? Um, yes, so I, um, like you Hannah, I work on characterising exoplanet atmospheres, uh, which basically means I shout at computers an awful lot and use some very, very bad language. Um, <laughs> So as Hannah's already said, the code that I use is called Nemesis, um, and it was originated at Oxford for solar system applications. Um, it started off just being used for Saturn and then expanded to include any and all um, of your favourite solar system objects. And then when exoplanet atmospheres actually started to be something that, that we could look at, it only made sense to diverge even further and go into exoplanet atmospheres. So basically if it has an atmosphere nemesis can do it um and the way that it works um is it includes a fairly simple one-dimensional uh, radiative transfer model which basically means um if you have an atmosphere with particular gases in it and a particular structure and you shine some light through it it predicts what you would see on the other side so what would emerge and then um, it also includes a retrieval component. And that's basically a fancy way of saying it tries to match the model spectrum that it generates to a spectrum that has been observed, possibly with Hubble um, or with something else on the ground. And it does that iteratively. So um, it tries lots and lots of different things before converging on something that it thinks is roughly the best match. So you hinted at the, that this code was developed on solar system stuff. And I know that in your early work, you worked on solar system planets. Could you give us a little bit of information about what, what you work? Where did you come from? Where did you start? Where, how did you move into using this for exoplanets? So I started off uh, my sort of scientific life as a Venusian. So I, <laughs> did my, I did my PhD looking at the clouds on Venus and um, basically trying to work out how the properties of the cloud varied as a function of latitude, as a function of local solar time, and um, as a function of um, mission duration as well. So I was using data from one of the instruments on the Venus Express spacecraft. Um, that was in a European Space Agency spacecraft that was in orbit around Venus um, until a few years ago. And I was using um, data from Virtus, which is an infrared and visible mapping spectrometer. So it was a little bit of a, in some ways, a come down to move from that into exoplanets because I had this beautiful spatially resolved data, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. a planet that you could actually get a map of and, and look at um, in all of its beautiful detail. To go from that to, you know, a, a single point <laughs> was uh, a bit of a change, a bit of a shift. Yeah. Um, Joe, have, uh, have you also worked on uh, Cassini and the outer solar system? As well, yeah. So I have I've done a bit of work on Saturn as well. Um, that I uh, that I did when I was working as a postdoc with Pat Irwin, who um, for those of you in the know, who is a, a huge um, expert on Saturn and outer solar system planets, and um, it's him that actually wrote Nemesis. So he is sort of like the the father of Nemesis and all of the many Nemesis postdocs and PhDs that have gone off um, around the world from Oxford <laughs> over the years that he's been there. 
Um, so yes, I also did some work on um, Cassini data. Again, looking at clouds, that's sort of become a bit of a theme for me. Um, I was looking at uh, the variation um, in, in cloud properties on Saturn as a function of latitude and looking at some of the latitudinal differences um, between the summer and winter hemispheres. So as our regular Exocast listeners know, I love clouds uh, and a lot of that is work that I've done with Joe in the past. Joe, could you explain to us how uh, the difficulties of dealing with clouds in both the solar system <laughs> and exoplanets? Wow, Hannah, that's a question. <laughs> it's a fun one. I want I want to hear the word degeneracy said like 50,000 times. <laughs> yeah, do you play drinking games on this podcast? <laughs> not normally, not normally. The time zones don't really allow that. That's true, that's true. It's a little early in the day for some of you. Um, <laughs> So uh, the main problem with clouds uh, is that you can't treat clouds in a model as just a little switch that you flick on and off. You can't just say it's cloudy or it's not because it's far more nuanced and complicated than that. Because you don't know what the clouds are made of. You don't know how big the droplets are. You don't know how high up they are. You don't know if you have sort of global cloud coverage, which you know, on Venus, you, you do have global cloud coverage. There's cloud everywhere, although the amount of cloud does still vary spatially. Um, or you might have a, a scenario like what we have on the Earth, where you have cloud cover in some parts of the planet, but in others, um, it's a it's a nice sunny day. So there are all of these factors that you, you have to account for. And the, the sort of fundamental problem with this is that we don't have enough information in our spectra to tell us all about all of the little details surrounding what the clouds are like and all of the details about what gases you have in the atmosphere, what the temperature structure is like, all of these things together, there's just too much. So what we, what we have to do is try and find a balance when we're modeling these phenomena between accuracy, so trying to represent um, a cloud as realistically as possible, and simplicity, so trying to minimize the number of parameters that we're trying to fit. And we're sort of constantly treading this, this tightrope, this very, very fine line between having too many parameters and not actually being able to say anything useful or having too few and not being able to match the data. Um, or just oversimplifying um, the, the properties of those clouds. And it's a constantly evolving problem because the quality of our data is continually improving, which is fantastic, but it means that you, you think that you've, you've got this balance right for one data set and then the next thing comes along and actually uh, what you've done is not adequate anymore. So there's going to be a lot of changes coming in the future as we get newer uh, and better instruments to make these measurements. Uh, is it right to say that we're at the point where our data is possibly going to be too good for the models that we've got? Um, when James Webb comes along, yes, that's going to be absolutely the case, um, at least for the, for the models as they are now. So I think over the next few years, the, the effort is going to have to be trying to get to the point where we are matching the information content of James Webb datasets. And it's it's going to be tricky. Um, it's it's going to be a challenge. In some ways, um, the fact that James Webb has been delayed is perhaps not a bad thing for our community because I don't think we would have been ready, at least not in this respect. Um, but at the same time, we are also going to have to make changes as the data come in, as we actually learn what the real James Webb data looked like as opposed to the simulations 
Uh, so it's going to have to be um, a sort of a dual process with with observation and with modelling efforts at the same time. I completely agree. And I, I do think that the delay is a bit of a blessing and a curse uh, at the same time. It's so many people's work is based on preparing for James Webb. The delay is really delays that a lot. Um, but in in the end, we we need to use all the time that we've got to try and work out what we're going to be seeing and how we're going to learn a little bit more about them. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I do keep saying to people who, not so much astronomers, but members of the public who like to say, oh, well, this telescope, you're spending an awful lot of money on it and it's been <laughs> delayed again, is it, we would much prefer to have a working telescope late than a not working telescope on time. Yeah. Perhaps as we were talking about future observations, maybe touch on Ariel, which is a project you've been working on as well, Joe. Yes. If you wanted to, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so Ariel um, is still seems like a long way in the future. It's at least 10 years down the line, but actually um, that's not a great deal of time to prepare for a completely brand new mission. And right. the, the consortium are very, very busy at the moment trying to put together the Red Book, which for those of you that aren't sort of familiar with ESA missions, is um, the big document that we are required to submit to ESA before our mission is formally adopted. So I think that happened very recently, a couple of in the last couple of years for Plato, Hugh. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Although they kicked the adoption down the road because they were kind of squeezed for money. So I wonder if that might happen for... Uh, yeah, well. I, I can imagine that that's fairly likely because they, they are still squeezed for money as far as I'm aware. Um, but anyway, so we're in the process of preparing this this document, this submission at the moment. Um, and that's um, taking up a lot of a lot of the time for the consortium over the next couple of years. And then after that, it will be a case of um, continuing to develop the tools that are required and also planning um, our targets. Uh, because one of the nice things about um, it being so far in the future is that we can wait for TESS to do its amazing work and also for Plato to provide us some targets. Um, so we will have a, a hopefully a, a huge number of really good looking planets to choose from. And what Ariel's um, sort of remit is, what we are intending to do is um, to at least take the first step towards doing for atmospheres what Kepler did for detection. Because at the moment we are not in a situation where we can really make any statistically significant statements about about exoplanet atmospheres in general. We can look at individuals and find interesting things, but it's not really telling us yet anything big picture about how planets work because we simply don't have enough of them. An aerial um, is going to be what changes that, we hope. Will Aerial be able to get um, high signal-to-noise spectra from a single transit for hot Jupiters? Yes. For the best targets for hot Jupiters, it will do it with a single transit. And obvious, obviously the number of transits required will depend on um, the particular target and how far away the star is, I mean, you know this, and so forth. But yes, for the best targets, it will be able to do it with one shot. Um, and that means that for the really, really good targets, like you know the classic HD 189733B example, it should be able to revisit it um, on a number of occasions throughout the mission lifetime and actually hopefully get some information about how, it, if at all, the atmosphere changes as a function of time. So that's what we're looking at for those really, really key targets. We're actually hopefully looking at temporal variation. And the nice thing about aerial coming sort of after James Webb as well is that James Webb will already have observed those planets 
and then we can go back and revisit them with Arial and look at uh, look at potentially variation over the time scales from James Webb to Arial as well. It's quite impressive, really, that a one meter telescope will get these glorious spectra of exoplanets when currently, you know, if you point a two meter telescope on the ground, you get <laughs> a few, maybe maybe one sodium line or something like that, one haze feature. So yeah, just I guess going to space is, is really, you know, you get rid of all the atmosphere, you get rid of the complexity of these instruments and it, it really improves what you what you can do. Is that yeah. why Ariel is so much better? That and also um, its location because um, it's not in a it's not in a low Earth orbit like Hubble, so you don't have a lot of the issues that you do get with Hubble to do with um, that simply to do with the fact that Hubble's in low Earth orbit. It's going to L two, so it will be, it will be it will be in a much better thermal environment, which is obviously important for an infrared telescope. And I think the other thing is it's been designed to do this and only this. It's not a multi-purpose platform. And how long's the the mission lifetime? The lifetime. Oh, I sh- I should probably have looked this up. Um, I think the total is around four years, but not all of that will be doing science. That includes some housekeeping as well, and getting set up. So I think yeah, it's about. Course, I think yeah. um, the nominal mission lifetime of actual science is about three and a half years. So one of my other questions is like, obviously a number of these really low hanging fruit will be done with the James Webb Space Telescope. So is the target list changeable and dependent upon what's already been done? Yeah, I mean, of course, there is going to be some wiggle room in that target list because we do want to prepare for those eventualities. But also, I don't... I mean, like I said before, I don't think it's necessarily the case that these things will be done. I mean, they'll have been done once at a particular time. So there's there's probably all with more detail that you can squeeze out even out of those best targets you can go back and get more phase curves you can go back and look at it again and see if anything's changed and i think that's that's every bit as valuable as getting really good spectra of hundreds of planets which is also what Ariel will aim to do sounds brilliant well uh i would just like uh, point out to the audience that uh Joe is not just uh, a, a scientist and exoplanet explorer, but also an excellent actress uh, and in musicals um, and uh, has done a number of uh, local musicals and is also a fairly recent astro mom. How has that changed the way that you work or how has that just changed your life in general? Well, um, I appreciate sleep an awful lot more than I used to. <laughs> That's something that... If you don't have kids yet and you're planning on having kids, enjoy sleep. You will miss it so much. Um, it, I, it, it's, it's obviously massively enriched my life being a mum. And it, it does change. You can't really describe it, I don't think, how much it changes you and everything and your perspective on things. Um, but it also does make, it does make pretty much everything else in your life harder to do just because you don't have the time that you used to have. And I I always did sort of keep fairly well to a kind of nine to five working day, just because that's always worked for me. I do not function well if I try and work for too long because I just stop being productive. So that hasn't really changed, but still things still have got a bit compressed because I have to make sure that I leave in time to do nursery pickup. Um, and way betide you if you're late for nursery pickup, you get charged. <laughs> oh, um, really? Yeah, you do. Um, mm. They're quite strict, which makes sense because they want to go home. I completely understand it. And if they didn't do that, I expect people would take advantage. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so there's that, but also um, there is no limit to how exhausting a toddler can be. They they just have they have so much energy and they never seem to really stop, and they it's it's sort of you you're never really off duty when you're with them it's you're you're constantly being needed and you know that makes perfect sense because they're really tiny humans and they need help to do pretty much everything and also they want to spend time with you but they want to spend time with you not just sort of sitting and chilling they want to spend time with you doing things like um telling you to lie on the floor and be dead so they can climb on you which my daughter loves doing um and i love slightly less but they, they, they all depends on how knobbly and uh, then their yeah. elbows and knees get. Yeah, yeah, and they're vicious. They can be vicious little things, really. They, they, they also don't have a lot of fear. Um, she'll kind of do crazy things, climbing on things, and have to be rescued on a regular basis. But it's also amazing seeing them emerge into real little humans who have their own um, interests and likes. So one of her likes at the moment is frozen. She's gone completely frozen mad. Um, and she has banned me. She has banned me from singing along. If I open my mouth to start singing along to any of frozen, I get told, no, mummy, stop it. Very firmly. That's it. I can't sing anymore because the songs are sacred. But she's also got really into rockets. Um, and that's not indoctrination. I had nothing to do with it. They did space and rockets one week at nursery and she just got really interested in it. Um, so she has now a toy rocket that we gave her for Christmas. Um, then she that she loves to sort of count down um, does three, two, one blast off and then um, runs up and down the room. Although it doesn't even have to be her toy rocket. It can be a couple of uh, Mega Bloks bricks that she's pretending as a rocket and that's just as good. Uh, so that's that's lovely seeing her get really interested in something like that. You mentioned, uh, you know, earlier changing perspective. Does that extend to the way that you see the universe, the way that you interpret data when it comes down to it? Yeah, <laughs> the way I interpret data. Um, probably not the way that I interpret data, but the the way that I I see um, what I do has definitely changed. I think what's really changed about it is, to some extent, it's. And it, I'm not sure this would make sense to everybody or be the same for everybody. And it's partly because I've had a daughter. I'm not sure I'd feel quite as strongly about it if, if I'd had a son. I feel really strongly that I I have to succeed for her because I want to show her so badly that it's possible. I want her to be able to look at me and say, well, my mum did it so I can do it. And and it, in a way, it it it's it's kind of not good because it, it adds it adds even more pressure onto the whole postdoc scene of trying to be successful and trying to be successful as a mum. But I it I I've yeah, it's a really kind of really strong gut feeling that I have to make it and I have to make it for her because I want her to see that it's possible. I don't want her to ever think that she can't do what she wants with her life. Well, it might not mean as much coming from me, but I think you're definitely uh, on the right track. So. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. But thank you very much for coming on and talking to us about exoplanets. With No, thank you. Now it's time for carols, right? We said we'd sing astro carols. <laughs> <laughs> you, were you going to make some carols? I think that that needs to happen for next year. I think we need to make some exoplanet carols. We, we did. We wrote, we wrote a few on Twitter. <laughs> there, we did. We there did. Are a couple. I think getting from 
from Twitter lyrics all the way to production is not something that's going to happen <laughs> probably but <laughs> yeah just just you wait in 10 years down the line it will be James Webb the musical or something Oh, that'll be true be truly horrendous won't it <laughs> yes it really would. well there's been a lot of ups and downs already so it's it already makes for quite a good story <laughs> yeah so for a happy ending there is actually um, and i'm really disappointed that i've seen no plans for it to be performed this year given the um, the moon landing anniversary there is actually a musical called moon landing that i saw about 12 years ago now when it was first written really? and it's really good it's all about the human Never side of it. of it. It it was it was a really small it was a really small production. It was performed in a in a theatre in Derby, and it was quite. It, it don't think it ever really got much um, much further than that sort of critical <laughs> uptake or much traction. But it, it it I went I went to see it um, because my because my dad was invited to go. I think for some reason, so I went. and It was really good. I I'd go and see it again. It's it's a shame that um that things like that haven't sort of been picked up more, particularly this year with the anniversary. Well, that's true. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's interesting there's a number of things that take decades to get picked up and then suddenly they become a, a massive thing again. So this would be the perfect time for that to happen, I guess, but uh... And there's still 5 months, you know. <laughs> if anyone can make it happen, it you can. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um yeah, I, uh, amateur musical theatre to Broadway does not happen in the click of fingers. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. We should um, next time we coincide at a conference, we need to we need to do some musical theatre listening and oh, definitely start writing the JWST one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. you can cast yourself as, as the spacecraft or something. Oh, really? Is that... <laughs> I think it might need more than one person to play that yeah. spacecraft. It's pretty big. <laughs> I'm really sorry I mentioned this now. It's the, it just it sounds truly, truly awful. It really does. <laughs> okay, we will hear from Joe later when she adopts a planet into our Exocast family. Well, now it is time to t- move on to the next segment, which you will be introducing, and that is the solar system as an exoplanet system. So where are we looking from and uh, what are we looking for? Yeah, I, I mean, I thought with this segment we could play a little thought experiment and wonder about what we might have learned about our sun if rather than being the blazing ball of photons in our daylight sky, it was actually just a pinprick of lights in the night sky. How many planets we might have found, what might our impressions be of that system. Um, so with a wave of the hypothetical wand, we've become, rather than... Earth creatures will become Trappist 1D-eons. So um, I don't know why I chose Trappist. Although there is a, a reason I'll get to why I chose tra- Trappist. But it's certainly one of the habitable worlds that we've discussed a lot on this program. Potential habitable um, worlds. Potential. Caveats. Habitable as in in the habitable zone. Mm-hmm. Potential. Yes. It is It is a world. So it, it's probably... <laughs> depends what you mean by potential. Yeah. Um, so let's say we just put the Earth there and we have the same techniques developed and we have the same astro- astronomical system and we've launched the same telescopes, but we're in the TRAPPIST-1D or TRAPPIST-1 system rather than the solar system. So what is in th- that star at the end of Cassiopeia, which is Sol, which is our sun? Uh, what, what, is it, what is it? So so from the distance of TRAPPIST, which is about 39 light years or about 10 parsecs, the sun's a fifth magnitude star, so bright enough to see with, with the naked Trippistian eye, I guess. Trippistian. <laughs> that's that's um, a tricky. Depending adjective. on, 
I mean, we're saying we have astronomy the same, but maybe we, ha- we you know, we're, we're ground-based octopods or something. I, I'm not sure. Um, I'm hoping that they've got the same brewing capabilities. They've just got their Trappist beer is actually Trappist beer. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, in, this is the hot thought experiment. We can we can have how many beers <laughs> Guys, we want. Um, this sounds like an astrobiology conference. Um. <laughs> well, I'm thinking that we can con- just convert one of the planet's day sides to just a harvesting like hops and uh, wheat and everything and getting some barley in yeah, there. Yeah, one hot planet, beer. one wheat planet. <laughs> <laughs> I like this plan. Um, Sorry. Anyway. Anyway, yes, yeah, so so the sun would be about the fifth magnitude star, which is bright enough to see with a naked eye, but actually reasonably faint. Um, fainter than hundreds of other stars in the sky. And of course we would realise that the sun would be a G-type star bigger than about 90% of all the stars in the galaxy, which is dominated by these M dwarfs that, like Trappist, we would be orbiting. Although, paradoxically, the Sun would be one of the smallest stars visible to the naked eye, because big stars glow brighter and outshine even these common nearby small stars. So actually, when we when we look out from, from Earth, most of the stars we see are giants and, and really, really massive bright stars. And that would be the same from Trappist. So how about planets? So I mean, do you guys have any guesses actually as to what we'd what we'd spot with our current technology in terms of like the time yeah. period as well? So assuming that we'd had like yeah. Kepler for 9 years or something. Yeah. Well, we might have got Venus with Kepler maybe at a push. But that's okay. about it, isn't it? Cuz Jupiter is so far away from the sun. That actually, if you're talking about transits, then it's really tough. But the fact that our solar system is coplanar makes it really better for multiple transits. Mm. So I, I was going to not limit it to transits. So actually, no, not I have it down it as to we transits, would... but still, isn't Jupiter too far away to give a significant radial velocity? Well, you, you might think that. But... Oh, I'm really interested to know the answer. It's <laughs> a good question here. So at at a fifth magnitude star is actually perfect for radial velocity observations. That's, you know, bright G-type star is, is what these RV surveys target. And it's quiet, isn't it? It's a really True. quiet star, essentially. It's relatively quiet. But actually, if you look at all the planets we have now that are like Jupiter, there's something like 150 giant planets with masses like 100 to 1,000 times that of Earth and which orbit um, about the same distance as Jupiter. So Jupiter's the, probably the, the one planet we could say with certainty that if we were living in the Trappist system, we would spot pretty pretty solidly. We'd find it. Saturn, which is another gas giant, but obviously orbiting uh, more than two and a half times further out, um, we probably wouldn't be able to spot because that is below the noise limit. But so we'd have Sol B, Jupiter, that we'd um, we'd be able to see from from Trappist. Um, and RVs are are improving as time goes on, of course. And so in the future, possibly. Sol will be surveyed by more telescopes, by Espresso, by the Terra Hunting Experiment, which is another kind of harps copy going on uh, a telescope in, in the Canary Islands. But even with these very high precision radial velocity surveys, um, stellar noise that the sun has is going to really get in the way. And even with a 10-year survey, like the the the, as I call it, um, it's probably going to be difficult to find Earth and Venus in our Yeah, and, and the problem with a survey of that length is that's the solar cycle as well. So the solar cycle is 11 years and where we go from very low activity to very high activity on the sun. So the stellar yeah. activity changing on that time scale will make it very difficult to find Saturn, which 
you know the orbital periods is is going to be hidden in some of that noise as well yeah i mean there's a paper from richard hall suggesting that if you for some systems um with this long 10-year survey of, of like sun-like stars you would actually find earth twins but only for some systems only if, if like you say the noise from the activity cycles is kind of happens to be low um so right. yeah so for, for rvs currently we'd only find jupiter but maybe in the future we'd get saturn and we'd get earth if we were very like if we spent all our time staring at the sun to try and find a planet around it with <laughs> rvs um, you have to know that it's the one you want to stare at that's the yeah, main so how about transits, as you said? Uh, so actually, the, one of the reasons I picked TRAPPIST-1 is that it is in the ecliptic. So that means for about 10 hours every year, Earth is perfectly placed between Sol, you know, our Sun, and TRAPPIST-1. So you would actually see transits of Earth from TRAPPIST-1, which is quite cool. It's one of the few planet-hosting awesome. stars where that's true. Um, but that transit would be about 85 parts per million. So that's less than 1% of 1% of the sun's light, which is blocked <laughs> out, right? So um, it would be difficult to detect. But um, as you said, Hannah, the Kepler Space Telescope was up for nine years. Four of those years were staring at um, one patch of sky. So, so if the sun was in that patch of sky, we might have been able to find Venus Venus is about 10% easier to spot than, than Earth in transit because it's slightly closer, so it, you see it more yeah. often, and it's only about 10% smaller in radius. So, um, But actually, I think if you look at the statistics from the Kepler mission, you basically only would have found Earth-sized planets around sun-like stars if those stars were extremely low activity. So our sun has about a 0 0.1, 0.2% um, change in 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 the, the flux coming the light coming from that star just because of the star spots and the other things going on on the stellar surface and these basically get in the way and mean that for kepler even if you stared at it for four years even if it was in the field which is you know let's remember a third of one percent of the entire sky so it's pretty unlikely that these trappistian kepler mission would have been looking at the sun in the first place that even then i don't think the earth or venus would have been spotted um is that number from based on solar minimum or just the average of solar minimum to solar maximum? Because that would make a difference. So the, the solar minimum, if you get it perfectly centered around solar minimum, you'd have two years either side and the activity would be yeah, much, much right. lower on the sun. Obviously, that's another coincidence that you've got to get. So I think in, in um, photometry, you pretty much always have bumps and, and, and spots and things. In out of activity cycles you have more faculty which is slightly easier to like they're more they're, they're less yeah. dippy they're more sort of gentle the, the the change in starlight but they're still there you know and i think you'd be yeah you'd have to be very lucky anyway to spot the earth in transit if we were looking at it from a from afar so transits are mostly out so except for maybe in the future this trappistian space agency would would send up something like plato or something like an extended test mission could it even um find a transit of a venus or earth um but yeah so we're so we're still on just one planet and in fact even if you go through the other techniques we would probably only have found one planet from this dot of light in cassiopeia what about direct imaging yeah so so there's a few techniques that will probably come through in the future so um, if there was a Trappistian Gaia, 
then it might spot, well, it would certainly spot Jupiter, and it might spot Saturn if they had an extended mission. Um, from astrometry, from astrometry? Right, yeah. So just the the the, oh, the nice. move of the okay. movement of the the sun with respect to the center of gravity of, of the <coughs> planets around it, and um, and yeah, direct imaging as you mentioned would be probably possible because ten parsecs is actually relatively close by for like big sun-like stars. So the um, so that means the planets around the sun, as we would look at it would be quite far out. Jupiter and Saturn, it'd be about 0.5 and 0.9 arc seconds, which is one 3,600th of a degree. How does the age of our system affect that? Because we've got very yeah. cold, very old Well, planets. you wouldn't be able to do it with something like Sphere or something in the infrared that's looking for this like young light that comes from these, these young hot systems. So you'd have to be doing something like WFIRST or these ELTs, which look for reflected light. Because, it, yeah, as you say, they're, they're too old and too faint in the infrared because they've cooled down. Yeah. And, and the direct imaging of a system like our own would be fascinating because you've got a huge difference in the albedo, the reflective nature of the atmosphere of planet like Venus compared to the Earth. And Earth's atmosphere, because of the changing cloud cover, actually gives you this variability curve that you would get. You'd get these kind of brown dwarf-esque uh, weather patterns that you would see where you can see through the clouds and then not see through the clouds. So it'd be really a changing albedo with the rotation of the Earth. So there's a lot of really fascinating stuff yeah. that you could do in reflected light for the inner planets in our solar system. You just have to get that working angle for these direct images down. And I don't oh, think no, we're there not. I mean, to um, even coming up into the future. I mean, we're talking... We're talking in the next thirty. So to get to get anything more than even even anything more than a point for something like the Earth, um, even a spectrum, say you, you're going to need a fifty meter mirror, you know, because you're 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 oh, bloody hell. Okay, so not thirty. Your planet years, is ten uh, a lot longer in <laughs> yeah, the future. Long, thirty forty years in the future, because your planet is what ten billion times less faint bloody than hell. the star. So not only do you need to like point a light bucket at it and make sure you're blocking out the starlight, which is like what these big missions are doing now, but you also need a big enough bucket of photons to pick up this incredibly faint source, which is the Earth. And I, I don't know if my bloody hell's really expressed this enough, but 50 meter is yeah. huge bucket, like a huge I mean, that was bucket. a guess. I, I, uh, I'm... <laughs> the, the James Webb Space Telescope's gonna change everything and it's only 6.5 meters. So we're talking about something that uh, is, is really quite yeah, but extreme. Then... In terms of energy, you know, I mean, if you if you find something, because what we could do is find something like the Earth with Louvois or with one of these Habex type um, next generation space telescopes, which are being planned. You know, these are these are in the pipeline to come after James Webb, and then we would um, then if we knew there's a planet there, we see a point source, you know, just a prick of light. Then we can think about these big you know photon we, buckets. If we're talking, if we if we imagine that we're the Trappist system, the planets in the Trappist one system are so close together with our given technology from the '60s, you know, going to the moon and everything. That technology would allow us to planet hop between the Trappist planets. Now, evidence uh, that we've got so evidence that we we have so far suggests that as you move away from the the star, the planets are getting colder, and we expect that potentially they don't have atmospheres. So imagine somewhere where you can literally planet hop to it and build a oh, 50 meter okay. telescope without an atmosphere getting in the way and use that planet as your telescope. Yeah. That's just blown my mind, Hannah. So. <laughs> 
if you take if you take the technology that we currently have in existence, they've had since the 60s where they would have been able to planet hop easily to build this massive telescope. So they could be way more advanced than we are in terms of that if they use each of I, their I think you're taking this thought uh, experiment in, in, for those too far. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking the thought experiment too far. We've got a beer planet just for harvesting beer. We've got a planet which is just for being a telescope. And we've got a planet where we can, we can live happily and learn all of these things. I don't no, know. No, 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 that sounds great. It sounds ideal. <laughs> it sounds ideal, but um, what about the realistic chances for like characterizing Sol B, Jupiter, in the future here? Any any options for that? I mean, W first could do it in five, 10 years when that launches. Wait, we'll be talking 2027. Right. Um, if if we were on TRAPPIST-1 and TRAPPIST-1 launched W first, then you could get a spectrum anyway, probably, or at least a few filters. I'm not sure what, what W first is doing in terms of Spectra. I think it's very low resolution if it has anything. But, um, you know, 15, 20 years. So, but it is quite disappointing in, in some ways that we would only have found one solar system planet. Um, but at the same time, it's actually quite humbling because you think about all those stars in the sky, which we either know one planet orbits it or none at all. Um, but then you do this little thought experiment with our own solar system and we see that actually there might be far, far more planets there that we just can't detect yet you know dozens of planets per yeah. star potentially they almost certainly earths are. abound yeah and i'm sure there are but we know it, we we have 20 30 years before we can actually find out for sure well fascinating segment you uh, i think that really served to illustrate some of the technological difficulties that we that we have at the minute and um why we shouldn't um just limit our imagination to the the planets that we know about at the moment the, the, the list of current planets should not be taken as here are the all the planets in the universe. Oh, definitely not. not. Okay, so this month, Andrew's going to be talking about what's happened in the exoplanet news. Which which studies piqued your interest, Andrew? Well, uh, as usual, and fortunately for us and the show, it's been another exciting month uh, for exoplanet science. So I'm going to jump right in um, with indications of a rather violent beginning to the Kepler-107 planetary system um, from data from Kepler and Harps North. So um, the roughly sun-aged, sun-sized G-dwarf star, uh, Kepler-107, hosts four planets which, uh, given their, their orbital resonances, likely formed at some distance away from the star before migrating inwards. But the most interesting part of this story is the fact that the two innermost planets, so Kepler-107b and c, have nearly identical radii but very different masses. So Kepler-107c, the second planet out, uh, is more than twice as dense as its innermost neighbour, which is uh, is really interesting finding, I think. Um, at about 1.5-ish uh, Earth radii, both planets are thought to be rocky, but the super-dense 107C is likely more of a, of a Mercury analogue. So we've already discussed a Venusian analogue, perhaps, and this is maybe more of a Mercury one, with a, a, a very large iron core comprising up to 70% of its mass and a smaller silicate mantle making up the remaining 30%. So. Um, I know we've discussed planetary siblings with different densities. Uh, uh, you know, they've been discovered before in the same system. Um, the Kepler-36 system comes to mind, for example. Um, but the likely cause of that mass difference was the uh, was atmospheric escape, which I don't think we can invoke in the case of Kepler-107, uh, because you'd expect the more uh, the more dense world to be the one that was more proximate or closer to the star, as opposed to the, the second one out. 
Um, so uh, an interesting result, and the uh, the authors of the, the paper, which appeared in Nature Astronomy, I believe, um, it's Aldo Bonomo and a large team of collaborators, they invoke a giant impact on Kepler-107c that removed part of its mantle and significantly uh, reduced its fraction of silicates. This had been very early in the exoplanetary system's lifetime. Um, so we now know, uh, or we, we know almost for certain, that giant impacts took place in our solar system. We have evidence of that from across satellites and from our own planet as well. But it seems it was likely this process occurred in other planetary systems too. And um, Q, I saw that you, you tweeted about this when the paper came out. So you found, this, uh, you found this an interesting result as well? Yeah, I did. But then, you know, I, I have a skeptical hat that I wear all the time. You do, and which is why I planets, asked you. The, the B and C, which are these like... Um, kind of Earth-like and Mercury-like planets, you only need to kind of move them by one and a bit sigma, 1.5 sigma, and so until they look the same. So they have like Earth-like competition, composition. So I, I'm, I mean, it, it's very interesting if it is the case that that 107c is this Mercury-like planet. But um, I'd like to see better masses, you know, longer RV before I'll, uh, I'll, I'll believe it in some ways. Okay, that seems fair. Um, Always calling for more data. Yeah. That's, uh, we can we can stamp that on the end of any news story, right? Um, yeah. But I think it is interesting in that <laughs> I it, should get know, a more data stamp. Yeah. <laughs> in in that it, it, it's a, it's again one of those those stories that makes me think about our solar system, I guess, in the sense that we invoke uh, you know giant impacts, something that likely happened to the Earth uh, early in its history, and it's I guess um, you know formation of the Moon kind of style. Exactly. Yeah. With the, with Thea, the uh, the object that is likely to have struck the Earth to to form the moon very early in the in the in the planetary system's history. Well, the, the thing about that that collision is that you basically you take some of the material and you move it into a different object. Whereas in this case, you need to take that material and like hurl it out. Of the yeah, where did it go? Completely is right? the question because <laughs> all this all this rock is just yeah. missing. So. Well, anyway, uh, an interesting story, uh, but one that perhaps uh, we'll follow up on uh, in, in a future episode. Um, so uh, we don't really want to provide you with a long list of planets each month. Um, you, you can go on the archive, you can check out which planets have been added recently. Um, but uh, TESS is expected to find 10,000 planets. We don't want to give you a list of those each month. Um, but the mission still spinning up, of course, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, been up a few months now. Uh, the planets are trickling in right now as opposed to pouring. So I just thought I'd highlight a couple of new planets from early on in the mission before it gets a little bit overwhelming. So uh, the second and third confirmed planets that have been added to the archive this month, uh, the second one being uh, LHS3844b, which is an ultra-short period super-Earth planet with a, a good possibility for follow-up uh, as well, uh, as well as HD 202772ab, uh, which is a highly irradiated hot Jupiter around a quickly evolving star, which sounds like a very interesting um, system for potential follow-up as well. Uh, can I, I want to invoke here a tweet that was put out by Natalie Battaglia, uh, which stated that if you are going to say that this is a good target for follow-up with James Webb, you better be providing signal-to-noise calculations using Pandexo or whatever ETC you want. I remember that So that, that you tweet. can prove and show that this is a good target for follow-up. Don't just say it. It's not a throwaway statement. Let's not make it a throwaway statement. Let's show it. Let's show how this is a good target and what we might expect to find. I could agree more, Hannah. It's something that does tend to be added to the end of things. Like, oh, we need to 
link this to observations. So let's just say it's it's possible. But there are tools now, and of course um, we had Natasha Batali on who worked on Pandexo, um, and you know we have those tools to to make those assessments now. So I know I'm saying it's a good it's a good uh, possibility for follow up, but that's because that's what, exactly what they said in the paper. So yeah, go to <laughs> um, Exocast 26B and follow the link to Pandexo. Use it, use it, and yes. uh, show us how. Well, talking of follow-ups, um, there has been a follow-up done on the first confirmed test planet, Pi Mense C. Uh, and from said follow-up, they found uh, some extreme ultraviolet output from its host star, driving likely very high rates of atmospheric escape. So uh, a potential interesting follow-up result there. Now, fortunately for us, that ultraviolet absorption uh, by material escaping Pi Mense C, perhaps, perhaps, let me try that again. Fortunately for us, uh, ultraviolet absorption by material escaping Pi Mense C presents perhaps the best opportunity uh, to determine the atmospheric composition of a super-Earth if we can somehow uh, get a spectra of that. Um, I'm not even sure if that's possible, but that would be uh, really cool if, if, if we can. Um, so there's a couple of planets that, uh, that Tess has already added to the catalogue, already throwing up some, some very interesting worlds for us to think about and study. If, 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 like me, you follow archive postings instead of just published things, I think there's now 16 test yes. planets. Right. Yeah, there are, actually. Um, but I, I wanted to only focus on the planets that have been added to, uh, to the archive. The reason being, actually, is that segues very neatly into my next little story, which is um, actually the NASA Exoplanet Archive is now approaching 4,000 confirmed exoplanets. Isn't that amazing? Um, and we've had uh, we had Jesse Christensen on the show uh, back at Exocast 30B, I want to say, um, who discussed a little bit about the different uh, databases and, and how planets uh, are accepted or removed from said databases. So if you're interested in that, go and check out that episode. Um, but I think this is a kind of exciting landmark that's coming up. 4,000 planets uh, since, well, 1995, I guess. Um, and uh, they're celebrating this this landmark with a with a fun little competition. Uh, and you you know we love an exoplanet competition here on Exocast. So thought I'd just give a quick shout out to to that. Go and check out the NASA Exoplanet Archive, their four thousand exoplanet um, competition, which is about they want people to decide what is the four thousandth exoplanet going to look like. Is it going to be uh, you know a, a hot Jupiter or a super Earth or or something completely different? Um, so I think that's a really cool contest, and you can uh, submit a drawing or a poem or haiku or just some words um, and uh, yeah attach the uh, the hashtag exoplanet4k to it as well um, so I just thought I'd give them a very quick shout out and uh, yeah maybe just take some time to reflect on on 4,000 confirmed planets it's a great time to be working in this field mm -hmm. don't you think okay well uh, talking of uh, of prolific planet finders uh, or pl prolific planet finding at least um, how many farewells have I said for Kepler or have we said for Kepler <laughs> on the show well I'm just going to add one more one more final farewell, um, and that's because the final image of of the workhorse of exoplanet detection um, was was released earlier this month. Uh, it was taken back in September 2018, uh, but it was released uh, earlier this month, and it, you know it was complete with those characteristic missing uh, gaps from all the failed CCDs over over the 10 years of exoplanet hunting. So um, this is you know this last light image, in contrast with the with the first light image, uh, depicts a region of space that's kind of unremarkable. I think Trappist is in there, maybe uh, I think G. J nine eight two seven as well uh, is in that is in that region um, and it's also appropriately a region where Kepler's successor is currently looking for planets as well so um, yeah overall an unremarkable image but I think it represents maybe something a little bit more remarkable uh, than maybe the ten year legacy of uh, you know one of NASA's arguably most successful missions uh, to date. 
uh, and maybe a final hurrah for the spacecraft. Um, yeah, I mean, we needn't remind our, our listeners that there's still so much to do, still heaps and heaps of data uh, from Kepler and K2, uh, plenty to be processed, plenty of science to be done. Uh, for example, uh, Kepler 107 as well, data from, from Kepler still being used to make uh, very cool, interesting discoveries. Uh, but I just thought I'd highlight that. So on a final note from the news, I'd just like to take a brief minute to return to our solar system for a minute and, um, and pay homage to one of the great planetary explorers of our time, and that's NASA's Opportunity rover, of course, whose 90-day mission on the surface of Mars has finally come to an end a full 15 years later. What an incredible <laughs> I love achievement. that about those little robots, man. <laughs> so amazing. It is. It is. I mean, it's such a plucky little little um, object and so charismatic because of that. But unfortunately, it does seem that uh, contact has now been lost for good uh, after it was caught in a particularly brutal sandstorm uh, last year. Um, so while it's not an exoplanet mission, I still think it gave us so many insights into uh, you know, geology and history of another kind of Earth-like planet nearby. Um, and just because it was so resilient and its fortitude has made it such a, a fan favorite for us space geeks. Um, so Oppie is survived by its bigger cousin, Curiosity, still out there roving away. Um, and it joins its, uh, its sibling, Spirit, the Spirit rover, which uh, contact with whom was lost back in 2010. And I hope uh, they're together in Rover Valhalla right now, zap zapping rocks and, and taking pictures. Um, <laughs> so uh, Rover on Opportunity, Ad Astra for the rest of us. And that's a wrap from the news desk. I'll throw it back to the, uh, the virtual studio. So it is time for us to adopt a new planet into our Exocast weird and wacky family. And it is, as always, our special guest's choice. So Joe, what planet uh, are the Exocast family going to be getting this month? Uh, so this month, you're going to be getting GJ1132b. Okay. And why? So I feel like it doesn't get as much love as GJ1214b. And I don't think that's very fair. It was the, it was the second planet to be discovered with, with Mirth. Um, and of course, that's not exciting as the first. But um, I think that actually, and particularly with James Webb, um, when it will actually become a more viable target for atmospheric spectroscopy, we could find out some really interesting things from it. So it's, it's probably rocky. Um, down to its mass and its radius. It's a little bit more Earth-like than GJ1214b, but it's still substantially warmer. So its equilibrium temperature is about 500 Kelvin. So it's not going to be an Earth Mark II, but what it might potentially look like is more of a Venus Mark II. So it's the right sort of temperature to have possibly um, had a liquid water ocean that it would have subsequently lost um, if it, and had a runaway greenhouse. So maybe you have got something that's a CO2 dominated atmosphere. And that might be our first detection of an exo Venus, which I think would be would be really cool and really exciting. One of the really interesting questions about the evolution of the solar system is exactly where that tipping point lies between something like Venus and something like the Earth and how much more or less likely you are to get Venus over the Earth out of that sort of scenario. So um, I think GJ1132b is a worthy addition to your adopted planets list. I also cut my yeah, teeth uh, as an undergrad on Venus Express data, so I completely agree with you on that, that point. I hadn't fully um, appreciated that it had that potential to be more Venusian, um, so uh, that's good to hear. One thing I like about the system as well is that I don't think we're finished from f discovering planets in it because there was 
TJ 1132C was discovered last year and it actually transits. And it's oh, one yeah. of those weird cases where it's it goes uh, the star, then planet C, then planet B, and then possibly planet D as well, which has a radial velocity kind of long, long uh, period candidate out there as well. So, yeah, be interesting to see what Tess sees if Tess is going to observe this because two of those planets transit. So. Well, then we'll have to see. Yeah, that would be really interesting. I didn't know, but uh, the multi-planet systems are always really helpful for answering that question that, that Joe mentioned of what's where's this transition and, and how does a star re- environment really affect the planets in the system? So if you've got more than one planet that you're able to observe, there's more information there that you can get out. Mm. Excellent. Well, we will add GJ1132b to our adopted exoplanets. Well, thanks so much for joining us for another installment of Exocast. We're going to return next month with more exciting exoplanetary news and views. And Andrew's going to be joined by another special guest. Until then, check out all our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cask. Cask? I'm I'm on beer. I'm on Trappist beer in my head, apparently. (laughs) Exo underscore cast. And like us on Facebook. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. 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 Exocast. Exocast.